0: Hi, gente, welcome to Peruvian City USA, the podcast where we share the diversity of the Peruvian immigrant experience. This is your host, Natalie Sofia, and this community was born from the need to create a space for Peruvian immigrants to come together, to support each other, to learn from each other, and to document our stories. The stories our guests share with us are deeply personal and paint a new portrait of what it means to be a Peruvian immigrant. I hope you receive these stories with an open heart and an open mind. So, let's get started.
1: This episode is brought to you by Sensibly Home Loans. For many of us, buying a home is a new journey and it can be overwhelming. This is why we rely and trust experts in the field. It means a lot is riding on your loan officer. Market conditions and mortgage programs change frequently. You need to make sure you're dealing with a top professional who can give you quick, accurate, and most importantly, personal financial advice. As an experienced loan officer, Ivan has the knowledge and expertise you need to explore many financing options available. On a personal note, I have known Ivan for a few years. We met in graduate school. Back in 2020, when I was considering refinancing my home, I called him to get the best financial advice. He helped explain everything to me and even connected me to a great professional in my state. Everyone's situation is different, from employment to credit to housing needs. His ultimate goal is ensuring that you make the right choice for yourself and your family. Ivan mean, and his teams are licensed in Arizona, Texas, Florida, and California. They're soon to be licensed in Tennessee and Georgia as well. To explore different loan programs available, seek financial advice, or start a secure online application, visit sensiblyhl.com or call 866-222-4690. Again, visit sensivelyhl.com to seek personalized service and expert advice in your home buying journey. Sensively Home is a mortgage broker NMLS
0: 2247181. Uh, welcome Joseph Rios to Peruvians of USA. I want to express how grateful I am for your time to spend with us, and I am uh, super excited to talk to you about the real estate market because it's acting crazy.
1: <laughs> it's pretty good,
0: <laughs> So I'm really looking forward to talk about that and and provide the um, audience of Peruvians of USA with some tools and resources that they can use in their own real estate journey. Uh, so Joseph, please introduce uh, yourself to our audience. First
2: of all, thank you for having me. It's an honor. So my name is Joseph Rios. I am a Peruvian born and I came to the US when I was nine years old. I went to Rutgers. I studied electrical engineering. And after Rutgers, I went to work for Corporate America. I worked at Verizon for about six years. I started my master's, my MBA in business entrepreneurship. And then I finished my master's after I left Verizon. And then I started going into real estate full-time. I am a real estate agent. And I'm also a real estate investor.
0: Yeah, thank you for that intro. To give the audience a little bit of context of how you and I connected, I interviewed your sister, Delia Rios, in episode 13 and season one. So if anybody wants to listen to the background story to Delia's and Joseph's immigration story in Peru, I would refer to you to episode 13. But Joseph, since you came at nine years old, Tell me about like your perspective, right? We heard Delia at
2: length about <laughs> <Yeah, exactly>. her <laughs> version of the story. It's it's different. Like I heard, I heard Delia's interview. Of course, I didn't really understand much of what going of what was going on back then. A, a lot of the things that she talked about, like the process of you know getting all the paperwork together, I I do remember that, but I didn't understand what was going on back then. I remember going to the to the U.S. embassy. In my mind, it was just like a trip. So for me, it was like fun and games, but I was so young that I didn't realize like what, what that meant, you know, to start a whole start from, from scratch basically. It didn't really hit me until the night before we left. And I say that because I didn't realize that it was just gonna be myself, uh, my mom and my sisters coming. I, 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 did, I mean I didn't know that my dad was gonna stay back in Peru. And I think that's when it hit me. Like, why is he not coming with us? And I mean at the beginning, like when we were here, um, I was with my cousins. My cousins also came around that time. So, you know, at least I have friends. I think for other people it's different when, you know, it's just you and your family traveling and you don't know anyone else here. But by the time we got here we we kinda already knew like some of the family members that had lived here for for years. But um yeah, we started I mean, we lived uh I think Delia covered that. We lived in um in a house with like other family members. We lived in a in a basement, we lived in an attic and when you're young, you don't, you don't realize any of those things because you're having so much fun being a kid, you know, going to school, doing, you know, doing all this stuff. And, and now that you look back, you're like, how can, how could we have gone through that? Especially now that I'm a real estate agent, like I go to houses sometimes and I see families living in basements. And of course that's not, it's not safe to do that. And, and then I sometimes forget that I did that. The whole experience teaches you how to be strong in life.
0: So one of the things that that I remember the most about Delia's interview is the closeness that you have with your parents and that you have as a family, right? Yeah. Uh, and so can you touch on that a little bit? Was that closeness always there or do, or do you think it was because of the experiences that you went through?
2: We've always been, uh, even with my dad staying back. Back then, you know, it, it's not like now where like you can just grab your phone and go to WhatsApp and then call someone and prove it, or text. You know, you had to go to the store, get a $5, I think it was $5 back then, just so you can talk to someone for like an hour. And my mom, I was always close to my mom. Even today, you know, as the only boy in the family, I like taking care of my mom. Like, if we're very close, like, I always tell my sisters how, like, yo siempre le consiento a mi amá. And, you know, when cuando ya me consiente a mí, they're like, oh, like, you know, you're doing what? Porque es tu, es tu edito. Like, that's what she calls me, right? And then I'll say, oh, pero yo siempre le consiento. Like, I'll buy her, like, the things she likes. I know she likes, um, these uh, catches that they sell at CVS. So any anytime that I see that it's running out, I always get her a new one, always get her a new one. But little things like that, but yeah, I've always been close to my parents. And now that I'm older, I, I mean, it's still there. You know, Even with real estate related things, um, some of the stuff that uh, I have going on, they may not fully understand it, but I take my time to explain it to them just so that I can get their advice. And that helps me a lot.
0: That's awesome. You spent like an extra year at Ruggers getting your engineering degree, and you come from a family of engineers. Like, I think yes. everybody in your family is engineered. <laughs> so, but... Why? So, why engineering?
2: So, I saw how Delia graduated from high school. She became an engineer. My older sister, who's younger than Delia, Sarah, she did the same thing. And I guess in my mind, I, I kind of felt like that, that might be the next path for me. Like, I, this is what I have to do. Like, I couldn't see myself doing anything else so i did it in five years a lot of people take four but i felt like doing it five years helped me a lot in you know not being too stressed uh,
1: yeah
0: well actually like i also my uh, bachelor's is also in engineering and get um taking five years for engineering is actually very common because there's so many courses that you have to take and each course is it's quite difficult it's like Mm -hmm. calculus two uh, linear equations, yes. you know, it's, it's really, yeah. it's very tough. And so it's, I, I, definitely know a lot of people who spread it out over five years, um, was, was trying to cram everything in four. I think all of you also went to Rutgers. So you're a Rutgers family. Yeah,
2: we all went to Rutgers. Yeah.
0: So why Rutgers?
2: To be honest, I was kind of following what they were doing, what my older sisters were doing. I really wanted to get the whole like college experience, go away. Um, and just really feel like what I used to see in the movies. I think Rutgers was far enough, uh, far from home, but still close enough so that my parents could visit me at any time.
0: So I stalked you a little bit in LinkedIn, and I saw that you were an intern at Goldman Sachs.
2: I worked in uh, operations. Back then, I think that was the only role that as an engineering student you could could do, which is operations. And operations in Goldman Sachs was basically, um, you kind of make sure that the flow of stock trading and all these other, other products that they have, like um, security, futures, you kind of make sure that the flow, um, everything went according to, um, according to plan because uh, they helped a lot of other firms trade stocks between each other.
0: So what was the culture like there?
2: It's very demanding. Um, I remember the first day of orientation, you saw a lot of interns stepping up to the mic to ask questions. They wanted to be noticed. Um, and even at the intern level, there was a lot of competition, like, you know, Because at the end of the day, an internship is, you know, it works both ways. For you, it's for you to see if that's a good fit for you, but also for the company to see if they can hire you full-time, you know, in the near future. The culture itself is very demanding. I used to go, I used to be there at like 7 in the morning, and I used to be back at home at like 9 p.m. at night. I used to be there the whole day.
0: That's an intense schedule.
2: I don't Uh, encourage anyone, by the way. When you're when you're looking for a job or you know exactly what you're looking for. You right. know what you're getting yourself into. Right. So that that really was for me to just uh get that experience, you know, yeah. and it's not because I thought it was bad. I just mm-hmm. it just wasn't a it, fit for me.
0: Right, right. No, and just to also give content to the audience, there are some companies out there that you want them in your resume because they grab attention. And so Goldman Sachs is one of those companies where even if you're an intern and like didn't continue on as a full-time employee, having that in your resume, it grabs people's attention and, and it helps you get in the door in some places. Thank you for saying that uh, because yeah, we're not discouraging anybody from pursuing no, it's a, a great, career <laughs> it's a great company. Yeah, it's a great company. Right. Yeah, it still is. It, it's, it's very reputable. Like having that in your resume will definitely grab attention from HR recruiters. And yeah. so tell us about your role in Verizon and what was your biggest takeaway of working in the telecom industry?
2: It's more like a, I think it's more like a tech company now because they've gotten so involved in everything like tech related, you know, with this new technology with 5G. So when I first started, I used to work in the operations center, which is basically where you monitor all the uh cell sites, making sure that all customers are getting good signal and making sure that, you know, these cell sites are up and running twenty four seven because it was an operation center that ran like three shifts. Uh, there was morning, afternoon and, and night night shift. The thing that was kind of tough is that at the beginning when you're new, um you had to work in you couldn't get the morning shift because it was by seniority. So all the people that have been there for a while, they will get the morning shift and then everyone else, depending on how new you were, you could either get the uh, afternoon or, or night shift. And it just so happened that I got the night shift and I worked from 11 PM to 7 AM for three years. I did that for three years. Yeah. yeah. tough
0: schedule. That's a tough schedule.
2: It was tough. it was tough. Yeah. It was, uh, it was tough. I, I think now that I look back, um, at what I did back then, I was young, right? I was 22, 23. I was 22 years old, but now I'm thinking it's not healthy for you to live a night shift style. I think it's not healthy.
0: No, I agree. My dad worked at the night shift in a grocery store for several years, oh, yeah? say even a decade, to be honest. No way. Yeah. So it's very detrimental to your health working yeah. the night shift, particularly the older you get. So. Yeah,
2: uh, exactly. Yeah. And there were people that had been there for 15 years and they were in night shift by choice. They like working night shit. And I could understand that because if you have, you, they, some of them had young children, they have a wife, wouldn't you want to be with them? Like, you know, when you go to sleep and then when you wake up, but you, you kind of got paid more also. So mm-hmm. maybe that's why.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned that during your time at um, Verizon, you started your MBA that focused in entrepreneurship. So mm-hmm. can you tell us a little bit, why did you decide to get an MBA and particularly an entrepreneurship?
2: I decided to get an MBA after I realized that I wanted to start a business in the future. I you kinda don't need an MBA to open a business. Anyone can open a business. But I felt like that was gonna help me a lot. And also back then I think they still do Verizon had a program where, you know, they will pay for your master's degree. So I decided to take advantage of that. It wasn't um, I started a program back in twenty sixteen. And mind you, I started working in Verizon back in 2012. And I, it's not like I took a gap of four years. I actually tried doing other master's degree before that, and I ended up always not going along with it. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I started the MBA in 2016, and I finished in 2019. Most of it was covered by Verizon's tuition program. But when I left Verizon in December of 2018, um, you know, they could no longer cover what was left of it, so that came out of my pocket. Uh, yeah, it's, it's good to have on your resume if, if you were to go to Corporate America. But I did it mostly so that, you know, when I started a business, which I already did, it will help me kind of like see how to manage the business, um, how to will be accounting, financing, all that stuff. It, it has helped me a lot.
0: Yeah, I want to highlight how Verizon had this benefit for their employees to cover an MBA or a master's degree. And I guess I want to encourage people in the audience to explore, to see if your company has those benefits. Yes. So many of us don't take advantage of they those don't. benefits and it only makes you more competitive in the job market. So look what benefits your company may have. I want to also highlight how, what you said about you don't need an MBA to start a business in many ways, an MBA, it's like a nice to have, but I, I, I also have an MBA and I uh, graduated in 2019. And oh, okay. For, and for me, it was so we graduated losing. the same year. And for me, it was more about the network because there is a strong emphasis on the network. Yeah. But to be honest, like similar to you, it's almost like you don't know what you don't know. And then the MBA doesn't make you a expert in anything, it doesn't. it's more yeah. like it exposes you to new ideas, new yeah. areas enough that you can go and learn it yourself later. Yeah. So, yeah, So I wanted to share that sort of like experience with the audience. If anybody's considering an MBA out there,
2: I I always tell people get one if if it's not going to put you in a lot of debt.
0: Correct. Because,
2: like you said, if your company offers some type of tuition program, then then yeah, by all means, take advantage of it. If you're getting a full ride to scholarship, take advantage Mm -hmm. of it. But if it's going to cost you a lot of money and you're going to take out an an additional loan, don't. I mean, really think, really reconsider. Right? I would say.
0: Yeah. 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 And also so there are full rides for MBAs, just to let mm-hmm. people know. that's the only reason I really went back to school because I did get a full ride. Um, um, I, yeah, I would encourage people to go to the consortium to Google Consortium and that's oh, the how jam- I get them. Mm-hmm.
2: Jam- that You got that? I uh-huh. think I applied for that. When
0: yeah, I, but yeah, I, I never got it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh I mean, yeah, so I ended up applying for that. I would say that some of the resources I would direct people to are like consortium, our MLT. So those are some of the the organizations that are helping, um, minorities go into Mm -hmm. MBA programs. So, but now you're in real estate and why real estate? Tell us, tell us your thought process. So
2: I I left Ryzen uh, December of 2018, but I had already started getting into real estate before that. Um, of course it was, it wasn't something that I did all the time because I had a nine to five, but I got first got into it, I guess, when I bought my first house. Um. That was back in 20, 2015. When I graduated from Rutgers around May of 2012, a lot of my friends were buying nice cars, you know, everyone had their full-time job secured. So everyone was buying cars. I think back then that that was the thing. It's not so much now where like, you know, especially Gen Z, they're more focused on investing rather than spending money. But back then in May 2012, I guess with us millennials graduating from school, a lot of people went to buy their, their cars, right? Because during college, most of us drove 50s and beat up cars. I remember all my friends were buying, like, these really nice cars. And, and I was going through the same. but I guess this is where my dad's influence came. And he could tell me, save your money, save your money. You're going to need it so you can invest it. He never told me exactly what to invest in it. He tells me now, like, yeah, I told you about real estate. You know, you tenia que comprar casa. He never told me any of that. He said he did save say your money, but anyway, you're not proving that. So um, I saved my money. Um, yeah, I saved money for like a year or two, I think. But I always knew I was gonna invest it in something. I just didn't know, you know, about real estate back then. For me, buying a house is like was something that I wasn't gonna be able to do until years after. I don't know why I had this idea in my head that you had to be forty. To buy a house. And I, I don't even know why now I, I don't even know why where that number came from. Like forty years old to buy a house. And so that was like that was not that never crossed my mind. And I think it wasn't until like twenty thirteen or twenty fourteen, uh where we had a meeting at Verizon. So I kinda arranged that meeting. And right before the meeting started, uh the person he was also a, a realtor, um actually he passed away a few weeks ago. Um his name was Jose Rivera, but he, he's he's like the person that told me about it the first time. He was a real estate agent, so he was telling us, you know, about buying real estate with myself and another member from, from HSO. And he um, he was telling us, you know, you can buy a house with this and that, with a down payment and everything. I didn't understand any of that, and but I remember telling him, oh, you know, I, I was saving money to buy a nice car, but, um, you know, my dad told me to like save it to... Invest in something else, and then he said, "Why well, don't you buy a house?" And I told him, "But I'm only, you know, I'm only 23. don't you have to be 40 to like buy a house?" And and that's when you know he kind of like told me about the idea of like how how it really works. Um, mm-hmm. But but this was like 2013, mid-, mid 2013, and I didn't buy a house until 2015. Mm-hmm. So the idea was there, uh, but it took me like a year, two years to actually pull the trigger.
0: Because it is a scary process. If you don't have somebody to guide you, it's a a scary process. I know I I bought a home in 2014. It was scary, right? My parents had purchased a home, but it was something that they trusted a lot, the realtor, right? And so, and unfortunately, because of the housing bubble that happened in 2008 and kind of carried on, they ended up losing their home because the way they had structured the loan, it was affordable for the first five years and then it became unaffordable. Like it wasn't affordable anymore because yeah. it just that monthly payment increased so much. And so mm-hmm. I didn't want to be in the same place when I bought a home in 2014. So I wanted to be the most educated buyer. And so I ended up, my, my approach to to purchasing my first property was I'm going to read all the books. I'm going to go to all the blogs and, and and I'm going to connect with different like experts and try to understand how, what this, and even then, like it is still a complex process. So like, how did you, how did you take this journey? I guess as I'm going to call it. How did you equip yourself with the knowledge to to be able to buy your first property?
2: We, the whole time that we were here, since, since we came to the U.S., we always lived in apartments. And for my mom, my dad, this was, this was, this was new for everyone. So I had to rely, like you say, I had to rely a lot of my realtor, my loan officer. Well, I should say real estate agent now because there's some, like, issue going on with, like, the, the trademark realtor and all that stuff. But I won't get into that. But anyway, uh, loan officer. And I just had to rely a lot of the, on the professionals to tell me exactly, like, what I needed to do uh, to buy my first house. But we, we spent, like, I think a year looking. Uh, Shout out to my realtor back then, because now that I'm on the other side and I do have clients that have been looking for a year, it's not easy, especially when the market is this tough. I also didn't know about all the different options of buying a house when you're a first time homeowner, like the whole myth about having 20% down to buy a house. I had the money ready to spend 20% on my first house, but it wasn't until I met the loan officer, which I'm, I'm good friends with until now. Uh, when he told me, you know, you can also do 5% down and you can save all that money, all that, the rest of the money, you can save it and buy another house. And when he said that, it's like a green, like a light, you know, popped up, but no way, like I can own two houses. How, you know, at that time, I was, yeah, I was 24 years old. So I'm thinking, how can I, I can buy two houses? And when well, he explained to me, um, he was a real estate investor too. So he, he explained to me, um how i could you know buy this one and then set the money aside and then buy another one single family multi-family um and it's how much money you will need to buy an investment property we closed on the house march of 2015 i'm actually here now i, I live this is the house that i the first house that i bought um when my parents moved in um and then we had the basement that i finished and this is kind of like my space a lot of people when i tell my people like oh i live
0: with my parents
2: (laughs) and i live in the basement
0: you're like no they live with me they live with
2: me (laughs) i'm like no man this is my house and the basement is kind of like it's kind of like a raised ranch style home so this is like a a whole new apartment and this is mine and my parents live with me and they're upstairs Yeah. um but yeah now, now i'm actually buying another house and that's gonna be mine like to live in just mine
0: that's so funny. I want to say that I also experienced the same thing when I bought the property, my parents moved in with me. There's that like explaining to people, like I was dating at that time and they'd be like, wait, so do you live by yourself? <laughs> do you live with your parents? Because it looks like you live with your parents and like, no, you yeah. live with me. <laughs>
2: yeah, I got tired of explaining that.
0: Right, right. So you mentioned that there are a lot of benefits to for being a first-time homeowner. And one of them being that you don't have to Put, put in the 20% deposit. And isn't that how we got into the housing market bubble? You t- touched on that a little bit. I said just making it easier for people to buy homes, but maybe benefiting not the, the homeowner, if that makes sense.
2: I understand what you're saying. So basically, how is this not any different from what happened back then? From what I understand, like nowadays is, is it, even though there are a lot of benefits for first-time homeowners, and you know maybe here and there you get from uh, down payment assistance, it's still not like an easy process where like anyone can just go to a bank and say, "Give me money, like my house." It, it's not like that. There's a lot of things in place to make sure that you are a qualified buyer, and also that the house you're buying is really worth what today's market uh, conditions say is worth. I think back then, uh, if I understand correctly from talking to people and reading some articles, everyone was in on the whole. Like, I wouldn't say scam, but everyone was saying on the whole bubble, you know, you had appraisers, you know, people who give the value of the home telling, you know, the banks, oh yeah, this house is worth this much. So they, they definitely qualify. And then you had the banks, uh, maybe some loan officers, um, putting in like extra income for a buyer that didn't have that much money in the bank or wasn't making that much money to buy a house. So and you know, even from realtors, I mean, I'm ashamed to say that, but I heard like even from realtors were, in, and, you know, they were showing houses to people who they knew wouldn't even, couldn't even afford that house or the payment. So I think that, that's, that how, you know, how it compares to how we do things nowadays.
0: I do see that there are, um, more requirements right even though like you can technically buy a home with just five percent down in some cases there are still additional requirements that you have to fulfill before mm-hmm. buying those homes and even the lenders are more careful about yes appraising the home what other benefits the first time homeowners have that they can take advantage of
2: there are programs out there that depending on your income um you can qualify for down payment assistance so you mentioned about the 5% down. That's, you know, you can do that for a conventional loan. There's also another type of loan that's very popular among first time home buyers, which is the FHA loan that lets you put even 3.5% down. You don't need a lot of money when it comes to that, depending on that, what, you know, the price of the house that you're buying. But most of the time, if you're going to be using FHA, you're going to be buying a house of maybe like 300, 400. Uh, so 3.5% of that is not. That much compared to other loans that require a, a lot more money, but there are down payment assistance uh, even today. I think uh, it's called the uh, New Jersey Housing and Mortgage, um, the HMFMA. I think it it's um it's an organization that helps people with uh, lower income, I guess, by certain areas, and they can you know they can help you even with like ten thousand dollars, which today. $10,000 can cover part of your down payment or part of your closing costs. Um, another thing, another method that you can use as a first-time home buyer is, you know, try to put through the 3.5% and then see if you can work into an agreement with the seller to have them, you know, give you some seller concession where they cover the closing costs. And then you have the, um, other organizations like the, um, I'm not sure if I'm saying it correctly, HMSMA. A, you have then, um, give you down payment assistance, and then you're essentially buying the house with zero money out of pocket.
0: I um, but I know some people in our community too, they, they're undocumented. Is the process different for undocumented folks? Like, uh, do they have to be documented to buy a property?
2: I, I think even now, if you have a, I think it's called an ITIN number, ITIN, you can buy a house with a, uh, it's just that the, the requirements are going to be a little different, you know, a little more strict. The way this kind of works is, like, for the banks, the more risk that they have to assume, the more is going to be required from the buyer. You know, so when we talk about 3.5%, everyone thinks, oh, man, like, this is, this is very low. I can buy a house with this. But at the same time, there are some things that they don't tell you. I mean, they do tell you if you have a realtor who cares, I guess, about you. But you have to pay, for instance, mortgage insurance every month if you, you pay 3.5% down. And that never goes away for the whole thirty years you're paying mortgage insurance every month. And aside from that, at closing, you have to pay a mortgage what's called mortgage insurance premium, which is like an additional I think uh, I think it's like one or two percent of the amount of the loan. So that could be like another, an extra two thousand, three thousand dollars on your closing costs. But you don't see that because, you know, you're more focused on the three point five percent. So like I would say, the more risk that the bank or the lender have, has to assume, um, the I guess the rules or the requirements from the buyer are gonna be higher. So with the ITIN, uh, you can you could get a loan. Uh, from what I know, it's gonna be a higher down payment. Maybe we're talking about fifteen percent, and the rate is also gonna be higher. We're talking maybe five or six. I'm not a loan officer. That's a disclaimer. But from what I've heard, it's it's kind of like that. And I think if you have, I think if you have a work worker's permit, I'm not. Don't call me on this. But I think if you have a worker's worker's permit, there are some banks that will lend you money to buy a house.
0: Okay. yeah that's uh that's good information. I know that if you have an i ten and you can get an i ten by I think you apply online there's there's I can probably put up a link i I definitely know people who have i ten and have several several properties, so I know mm-hmm. that's possible. definitely encourage people to google that information. Google's your best friend
2: <laughs> yeah google, you can learn so much on on Google on youtube on yeah. podcast like i I learn a lot of things. I like watching YouTube videos sometimes mm-hmm. and most of the time the videos I watch are are. Like, I guess real estate related or investment mm-hmm. related. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm kind of like a night owl. So I go to sleep maybe like at two, or three in the morning. Mm-hmm. And usually what I do right before going to bed is I'm just scrolling through YouTube videos, <laughs> learning new things.
0: Are there any channels that you recommend people check out?
2: Bigger Pocket. And I mm-hmm. think that's something that if you ask anyone in real estate, oh, can you recommend a YouTube podcast? They'll say Bigger Pocket. That's like number one. I, I got a lot of my info like different like ways strategies i guess because you hear from different people you know you hear from the and even if like you have some guests uh, on that podcast that might live in like california or or texas markets that are not the same as yours you can use some of the strategies or or some of the creative ways that they're like you know financing their purchases all those things and apply it to new jersey or wherever you are Uh, but bigger pockets is definitely one of them you had someone actually that was interviewed by Bigger Pocket.
0: Yeah. Diego, right? Diego Corso. Yeah. yeah he, was in I... season, he was in season two. I'm trying to remember what episode number, but I'll link it. I think I want to say it was around episode 40. He is um, undocumented, Peruvian, and he has several properties, and he has been able to become financially independent. Through his properties and renting them out. So, I would definitely encourage people to to listen to that episode. So, it's episode 46 was the, the rerun because it's definitely one of our most popular episodes. I wanted to re release it. Definitely check episode 46 with Diego Corso, who achieved financial independence through real estate. Uh, I'll link the YouTube channel to Bigger Pockets, but it is a well known community. A lot of experts owning a home is expensive in in the sense of like, things break, you have to fix things, yeah. and you're yeah. the one responsible for fixing them. And so it's always nice to have a, a, a little money aside to take care a of cushion. those items, yeah. right? Yeah, like a cushion. So I guess walk me through your thought process of when you should think about paying less down payment and have more cushion because the PMI is worth it, if that makes sense.
2: Well, the PMI, it's it kind of like required when you're putting down less than 20%, right? But in the example that I, w- I was telling you before with FHA, it never goes away. That's, that's one of like, I guess the downsides. but I think the benefits overweight, like surpass whatever downsides it may have, but w- the difference with a conventional where you can do 5% is that the PMI is going to go away. Once you reach um, 20% of the value of the home, or I'm sorry. Once the loan is 80% of the value of the home. So let's say, for instance, you're buying a house, um, it's like a $100,000 house, right? You buy a $100,000 house, and you're putting 5% down. That's 5,000, right? How you put 20,000, which is 20% down, you wouldn't have a PMI, right? But the rule with a conventional loan is that as soon as the loan that they're giving you reaches 80% of the value of the house, the PMI goes away. So I think that's where the conventional product beats the FHA so back to our example um if you think about the market and how it fluctuates you know sometimes the values go up most of the time it will go up and then you know unless we have a bubble like we did back in '08, um it'll go down but it, it won't go down quickly right so assume you bought a house like in 2016 2017 and you did you know you did the five percent on a $100,000 house you put $5,000 down, um, and then you borrow 95000 right? If you were to put 20% down, which is 20000 that means you were to borrow 80000 right? So I, since you put 5000 now you got to pay private mortgage, mortgage insurance. But you know that from 2015 to 2016 and 2017, the value of the home went up. Maybe it even doubled. Let's just say to make things more simple, it even doubled. And now the house is worth 200000 Right, the house is worth two hundred thousand, and you borrow ninety five thousand. Now that ninety five thousand is only forty seven percent of that two hundred thousand, so now the PMI goes away because the loan has to be less than eighty percent of the value of the value of the house, not mm -hmm. the price you bought it for.
0: Okay, how soon could the PMI go away?
2: No, it goes it goes away like pretty quickly. Uh, I did that's what I did when I bought my house uh, back in March of twenty fifteen. I put 5% down, so I had a PMI. And then 2016, um, 2017, 2016, I bought another house nearby. And then 2017, I sold that house. And because the market had gone up, that house that I sold, I sold it at a price that was way higher than what I paid for the house where I live in. And I used that as a comp, like right? a, a comparable, because there were similar homes in the same area. I used that as a comp to tell the bank, oh, hey, I sold this house for this much. So that means my house must have gone up in value. Can we get rid of the PMI? And then the bank, what they do is they sell, they send someone out, out here, whether it's an appraiser or, or a broker from a real estate company. Um, they take a look at the house and they do their, you know, their appraisal process for like they compare homes in the area. And a month later, it, it was gone. It was like $100 a month I was paying. So wow. I was like $100 a month.
0: Did you have to pay for that? appraisal
2: that the bank did they chart they so they gave me two options you pay 600 dollars, and it's going to be a more detailed like appraisal report just like when you buy your house the first time or you can do a bpo what stands for a broker's price opinion which is a broker from a local real estate company will come and and you know give like an estimate obviously it's not going to be like a professional appraiser where you get a full report but Uh, because I was very confident in what the value was. And I was already a real estate agent back then. I was doing it part-time, but I was already a real estate agent. I was very confident that I only needed a BPO and I was going to be okay. And for the BPO I paid for like, like, I think 50 bucks. It wasn't that much.
0: So can you walk us through what's that process of buying that second properties, buying to have an investment property is more expensive. It's my understanding, like the interest rate that the bank could give you is a lot higher.
2: Well, for the second property, I basically used the money that was left over from the first house um, because I ended up not putting 20% down on my primary home. I Whatever was left over, I used to buy, just like the loan officer told me, right? Like, you can save this money and then buy another house. And that's what I did. I found a house that was actually like a few blocks from where I live that went on sale. And it was a short sale. So it, uh, a short sale is basically when... The homeowner is owes more on the property than what the property is worth. So obviously, given the current market, you can't list the home at whatever you owe on it. You have to list it at the market price. And I put an offer on it, and it took like almost six months just to get a response saying that my offer was accepted, which is crazy because I had already forgotten about the house. I ended up buying for less than what it was worth at that time.
0: Yeah. So did you did that? Did you end up getting like a loan as a as a primary home or as an investment property? What was that like?
2: Uh, I would put it as an investment. Uh, okay. I think nowadays, you know, some people would, um, I mean, you can, you know, you can buy, a, put a down payment as a first-time home buyer, and then a year later, maybe do the same when you move into another house. Right. That that you can do, right? Right. But, um, you know, sometimes people will buy, all like, they'll put a down payment on a house and then right. they want to get an investment property and they'll put a down payment as if they were going to live at in that investment, park, but they don't really live there. Mm-hmm. And it's, I mean, at the end of the day, you you could get in trouble, but you know, at uh, your own risk, right. but I, that's not, that's not what I did. I, I put 15% down back then. I think still is for now. Like now when you buy a single family investment, it's yeah. 15% down. Okay. If it's multifamily it's 25.
0: Okay. And so, Did you ended up renting it right away or like what was... I did. Yeah. Okay.
2: I did. And what's that
0: process
2: like? Well, it was my first experience as a landlord. So everything... (laughs) Yeah. It's like, just like buying a house. It was first time for everything, you know, finding tenants, um, trying to see which tenant will be the right fit, you know, and by right fit, I mean, who's really going to take care of the house. Uh, They're going to pay their rent on time. And... I thought I did my due diligence, but i the tenants that I got I wasn't happy, I guess I mean at the beginning it was all so, everything was fine, but then you know they they um started falling behind on payments, started bringing in more people, and I had a rule on the lease for like no pets, and then they brought a dog, and that was like i don't I think I can't curse, but you know they were leaving jobs everywhere like in the house and it was it was a nightmare, but um. I think, uh, I may turn that into a positive because, um, you know, I ended up selling that house and I got a lot more than what I pay for. Nice. So I used that money to buy another one. Another
0: wow. Wow. And did you also, so did you sell it like after the, after your first tenant left? Like, was that like immediately after the tenant left or did you get another tenant?
2: Well, that was going to be the plan. That was going to be the plan because, uh, when they left, um, it's funny when when they left. I wasn't even here. I was in Peru. Uh, it was I was on a trip to Peru. So, but um, when they, I had my attorney handle everything. You know, usually you can do a lot of the things. I think in real estate. Uh, I don't want to get sidetracked, but I think a lot of the things that you can do in real estate, you you can do a lot of things on your own. You know, you can if you're gonna file an eviction, you can go down to like a city hall, get a paper. You can save a lot of money, but. For me, it's like I'd rather leave things to the professionals and let them handle everything. Even though I know I could probably do it on my own, I'd rather just hire a professional and have them handle everything. But I had my attorney handle that. And when, once they left, the plan was to fix up the house, make it look nice for the next tenant. But this was like summer of 2017. I realized, oh, okay, maybe I knew that, oh, I was getting my license at that time. And I knew the values were going up in that area. So I said to myself, I, I don't want to deal with tenants anymore. Um, it's hard of stress. Let me just sell this house and see how much I can get for it. And I made, I made a decent profit. So, nice. Um, I, I thought I was done with real estate, but um, no, I bought another house.
0: <laughs> so your third house, then, did you also uh, get tenants for that? Or did you, um, like sort of buy it, flipped it and sell, sold it?
2: No, I, I, well, after having that experience with single family, a lot of investors will tell you, um, there's different types of investors. Some people are very focused on single family and that's all they buy single family, single family, single family. For me, the only downside with that is that just like I experienced it with, with the tenants, if you have only one, um, source of income, right? Because it's only one tenant, you know, even though you have the whole family it's just most of the time they depend on one or two incomes. But I consider that as like you just have you can only rely on one income on a single family. So the moment they stop paying rent, now every other, you know, any other payments, whether it's maintenance or mortgage payments, have to come out of your pocket. So how do I minimize that risk? And that's when I bought you not know, the the house that I bought after that was a three family. Because in my mind, if one tenant starts stop paying rent and I have two. And what is the probability that two or three tenants will start paying rent on the same month? You know, I, I lowered the risk as much as I could. And when I bought that house, there were tenants that are already living there that has been living there for years. So um, that's another thing. Uh, when you have tenants that had lived there for a while, the maintenance or the things that you have to take care of, uh, it's not going to be as demanding as when you put a new tenant in there because they have already been living there for so long that they know the condition of the property. They know all the ins and outs. They they know a lot more about the property than I do, right? Whereas so if you put a new tenant, they expect you to tell them exactly what's going on with the house. And if anything goes wrong, then it's on you because you didn't disclose that when they moved in. But if the tenants have been there for a while, they, they know everything. <laughs> they know if there's a leaky fault there like a... Sometimes when, when, when you run the water for too long, they know all of that. So, but yeah, I bought the house and all three tenants were already there. Three family.
0: It's a three family home. Wow. Yeah, I'm trying to think. I'm in the DC area. I'm like, have I seen a three
2: family? Oh, you're in DC? (laughs) I'm
0: in DC, yeah. I
2: don't know why. I thought you were in California.
0: (laughs) It's so funny. Everybody thinks I'm everywhere except DC. I'm telling
2: you. Sometimes, I don't know why sometimes I, there's these ideas in my head. Yeah. And then I believe them. Okay. i'm not crazy but like remember what i was telling you about uh the 40 you know, being 40 to buy a house yeah i don't know why i assume you're in california i don't even know where that came from
0: yeah. that's so funny yeah so i'm in the dc area and i don't think we have many three family homes here or even two family homes here but no it's very
2: expensive over there too
0: yeah it's a very expensive market for sure here when uh when a tenant stops paying for their rent right like they're on a the monthly basis like would that happen to you with your first property? Did you have money set aside in the event that that happened or like, or did it take you by surprise? Like how, how did you, yeah. Tell us about that.
2: Well, it, that, it didn't take me by surprise because they were already being late on their payment a month, a couple of months prior to that. And then I think a month before they stopped paying completely, they were paying half the rent. Um, so I think with, the thing with New Jersey is that it's a very tenant friendly state and you cannot just evict a tenant for no reason, especially now because of the uh, eviction auditorium. but before the pandemic, you had to have a reason to evict a tenant and they'll tell you it could be either, you know, they stopped paying rent or, you know, they're damaging the property or they're, they're causing uh, trouble for, na- not, not causing trouble but like there's some violence going on you know, and uh or some illegal use. But it's not like just you decide one month, oh, I don't want to like let's get them out. And then you also gotta read the fine print, right? They stop paying rent. That means they stop paying rent completely because even if they pay you ten dollars, that still counts as you getting rent. You know, so if they're paying me half the rent, I can still can't evict them because technically they're still paying. uh, but any other listeners out there like that's not don't do that <laughs> uh but yeah even even if you're getting money you don't you don't have a right to a victim right. so i had to wait until they were completely done paying anything for me to start the process right. and during that time i was losing money but i also made a profit from the month from when when they moved in and they were paying i made a profit on that and also back then i was working at, at verizon and i mean i was making a decent income so I was paying out of pocket, but I, obviously it's an investment. I would prefer not to be paying out of my own pocket, but it didn't take me by surprise. I knew it was coming.
0: Okay. So you were more or less prepared for it financially too, to cover for a tenant not paying on time or not paying at all. So, yeah. Okay. So how did you bet them? How did you, how do you bet tenants?
2: Oh, Craigslist. Craigslist. (laughs) I don't, I wouldn't recommend that. I don't even know if Craigslist is still around.
0: Okay, but did you check like their credit score? Did you do like financial, I, like not financial, like what's it called, criminal background checks? Like cont- yeah,
2: there, there's okay. like there's like online websites where you can go in and you can have the tenant, like you can send a link to the tenant and kind of like screen them, based on like you know they enter I think their social security number and then, um, that website will give you a report of their financial situation and, and you know eviction history and everything. But the problem with that is that you don't get the actual, like, you don't get actual numbers. You don't get the credit score you don't get any of that. It's, they give you a, a letter grade of what type of tenant, like they'll say, oh, they score an A based on, you know, all the information that we have from them, or they have a B, C, whatever. I if it's a B or a C, or maybe if it's a C or lower, maybe they've been evicted before, um, uh, maybe they've been, they had They've been jumping from like job to job, or they don't make enough for like a whole family. It, it could be a lot of things, right? Uh, but everything checked out with this tenant. There was an A plus. So I mean, you you never really know. I still right. think that you never really know. Like, there's no way you can meet a stranger and say, oh, and like in a few days, try to vet them and say, okay, yeah, you're the right fit to live on my house for like a year. It's it's like but, a hit or miss sometimes.
0: Yeah. People people are unpredictable.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. You never exactly you never really get to know someone.
0: Right.
2: So you've known them for a while.
0: Right. And I think and that's something key to to highlight. I, if you're going to invest or be a real estate investor and you want tenants, gotta be prepared for that for people being unpredictable. You can have all your processes and check all the checks that you want, but people in general are unpredictable. I also think I also think it's important to mention how, like you talked about having your loan officer and having your lawyer, and it seems like when you are in, invested in real estate, you you need a team, right? Yeah. You need a team. You need a team. My understanding is you need perhaps a loan officer, the lawyer. You also need somebody who's a, a good maintenance person, handy, and woman who can come fix your property and it's reliable. Can you just talk to us about who makes up that team for you? Like not like people's name, but sort of roles.
2: I think it's, well, I think at the beginning, it's obviously going to be you from working with different people and you can kind of tell who's really there to help you and who's really there to make some money. But with the loan officer, I, that was a referral from the realtor I was using back then from the real estate agent I was using back then. And, and, you know, he was very knowledgeable and I, I learned a lot of things from him. And then from then on, you know, the attorney, actually I met the attorney because my mom, my, uh, my mom knew someone, a Peruvian, uh, another fellow Peruvian that was helped by that attorney. And he started telling my mom, Oh, you know, he's really good. And he helped me with like, um, you know, I booked my tenants and do all, all this paperwork. And that's how I kind of got introduced to him. And ever since then, like, he's my go-to attorney for everything. So. Once you have a few professionals in your circle, I think the best way to, like, kind of, like, avoid the, the risk of, you know, meeting the wrong people is to ask the right people that you already know about recommendations for, you know, the, the other professionals that you're looking for. So, same thing with contractors. Um, right now, I'm working on a project where we have a plumber that's been, you know, delaying, I guess, what I've been asking from them. And... I decided because I know um the other person that's working on um construction, not not plumbing, but I have someone else that, that does construction. I asked him, um, do you know a plumber? And he tells me, Oh yeah, I know someone that he he does the job and everything, but um, you know, sometimes he has a couple jobs going on at the same time. I'm like, That's fine. As long as you know him and you think he's a good plumber, let's let's get him, you know, to do this work for us because this other person not, is not reliable. I kind of already know if I am getting a recommendation from from a person that's been been there for me a lot, I I know it's going to be a good one. So that's kind of like what happened. Same thing with my attorney. I asked him, I needed a CPA, and I asked him, can you recommend me a CPA? And he said, oh, use this guy because I work with him all the time. So now I'm starting to build a new circle, and I'm starting to get recommendations from the people that I already know are looking out for me.
0: Yeah, and that's so important. I think when people start in the real estate inbe- um, investment journey, it's really about uh, building that community around you, building that network around you, right? Like you, you building that team. You just mentioned a loan officer, a real estate agent, uh, an attorney, contractor, CPA, and home uh,
2: uh, inspector. Home uh, inspector. <laughs> everyone.
0: I think that's a good strategy. Like if you already have people that you trust uh rely on their on their referrals and and also like you're not you're not tied to someone you know indefinitely if they're not doing yeah. the job like they're not it, it's they're not doing the job like you you can move on from that so we sort of mentioned that we were going to touch into what the real estate market looks like now and how it is different from 2008 when the housing bubble happened and it's different even when you and i bought our homes around the 2014 2015 time So what is happening (laughs) now in the housing markets to give the audience some sort of more context, interest rates are really low, but the competition for uh, homes is fierce uh, to the point where several homes are having 20, 30 uh, offers from people and, and everybody's bidding more and more and more and more money for a home. So how did we get here?
2: I think, well, part of it is the pandemic. But even before the pandemic, I was already seeing that in 2019, I was already seeing, you know, people bidding, like multiple people bidding for a house. Um, And then with the pandemic, people thought that that's when it was going to stop, you know, because prices were going up a little bit before the pandemic. Um, Since like 2017, they were going up a little bit. Um, So picture like a straight line, um, you know, it's. Going up slowly, but it's go- you can tell it's going up. And then once the pandemic hit, people thought, okay, this is it. Like now everything's gonna drop. But it did the complete opposite, where like it just skyrocketed. And then to everyone's surprise, people were buying even more now. So you started seeing lines of people or open houses or multiple offers being submitted way above asking price, cash offers. You know, people that's really looking for a place to live. And usually, you have more people buying houses in the summer, uh, spring and summer, and then winter time it kind of slows down a little bit. But I'm still seeing that, not as much as I was seeing it during the summer, but I'm still seeing it. So you're asking, how do we get here? I think with the pandemic and then the cost of materials, and some people were laid off, or like people couldn't work anymore, the price of the materials went up, and at the same time, I think there was a labor shortage for people building houses. So not that many homes were being built. You have a, I I think every year, an average you 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 have an average of like so and so many houses being built, but then the pandemic comes, and then that number kind of shrunk a little bit. And on top of that, at the fact that more people are buying, and not just people, you even have like Zillow and black black um black rock. And other huge corporations buying loads of houses. So that pushes the competition up, which, you know, increases the demand and increases the price for homes. And like you said, rates, did go down. But I think part of that reason why it went down is because the Fed had to step in, you know, and encourage more people to keep buying houses. And I think now that people are going back to work and unemployment levels are going down, you're going to have rates going up little by little
0: so as we so we're recording this episode end of 2021 uh the episode's not going to get a release into 2022 but uh, wait uh, one month why
2: because i'm saying all this right now and based on people that i've been talking to yeah what i've been reading the rates are going back to like the rates are going to go Gonna keep going up, and yeah. maybe we'll hit, we'll see pre-pandemic level, like yeah. sometimes like after the first quarter. Oh. I think I I heard like a lot of things are gonna happen after the first quarter. Like okay, maybe the, the crypto market. You know, everyone saying, "Oh, there's gonna be a bear market coming up," so
1: mm-hmm.
2: that's gonna happen like after the first quarter, twenty twenty two. After the first quarter, I I hear a lot about after the first quarter, twenty twenty two, which is mm-hmm. like in the March. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. So
2: it's kind. I'm, I'm interested to listen to this.
0: In, in, in if, the future, if, yeah, in the future, yeah. yeah. In
2: the if future, yeah. Maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> say, this is not coming from me. This is like from things that I've been reading.
0: Right. Yeah. But I,
2: I, I hope interest rates stay low, some more people can buy houses.
0: Yeah. So I guess like that was going to be sort of my question too. As we're stepping into twenty twenty two, some of us are like, Okay, I'll wait until the competition is less in the housing market and others are, and others approach are, no, I'm just going to go for it and because the interest rate is so low and just want to take advantage of it. So do you think it's still worth it for people to try to buy now with the interest rate low or or how do we think through that?
2: I think with the rates, the rates play a very, very important role because if you think about it, you, you're paying for a house that you got to be living in for 30 years, right? So, you're not concerned about, like, what you're mostly concerned about is, like, can I afford my monthly payment, right? And that has a lot to do with the interest rate that you're getting now, right? Um, so people that couldn't afford, let's say, 2019, they couldn't afford a $400,000 house. Not because of, like, their qualifications or the requirements from them as a buyer, but because they couldn't afford that monthly payment. And now let's say you're in 2020 or 2021, and that $400,000 house went up to 500000 But because the rate went down, you can actually now afford that house because the monthly payment is lower than what you would have been paying for that $400,000 house in 2019. So I think that a rate, a rate is very important. And also they said that on average, nowadays, especially with millennials, you're staying in a house for like five to like eight years. You don't really stay there for the 30 years of the, you know, you're thinking, you know, when you buy your house, you get to the closing table and you get like the uh, amortization schedule where you see that you're going to be paying this much until 2045 or 2050. And that's scary, right? Because you're thinking, oh man, like I'm going to be stuck here for 30 years. What am I going to be doing in 2050? You know, but you're not going to be staying, more likely you're not going to be staying in that house for the whole 30 years. I'm not saying you shouldn't. Also, mm-hmm. you can you can do whatever you want, but
0: mm-hmm.
2: most of the time people want. I'm not even saying like I bought this house in twenty fifteen, I'm move out soon. So
0: the millennials definitely tend to move more than other generations, that's true.
2: And not just with housing, I feel like with jobs or, Yeah. Like I was listening to the interview with uh with my sister, right, with Illia. And she's right when she said like back then, like if you move like it was it wasn't too common, but now I see people changing jobs all the time and that's completely fine. Like society even accepted that now. Yeah. Especially Gen Z. I think Gen Z doesn't, you know, they... They don't care. <laughs> yeah. They're good. They're okay with that. Yeah. And I like that.
0: Yeah. No, it gives you different skills and different experiences and different fields, which I think it's, it's great. Uh, all right. For those of us who want to buy a house, what are some red flags when you're looking at a home?
2: I focus a lot on, on what's called the ARV, the after repair value. And the value of the house, um, if it was in ultimate condition, you know, you have a, a maybe not a yeah, not a brand new house because you're not building it from scratch. It's the foundation; everything's already there. But I mean, everything on the inside has been updated. Everything on the inside, outside, new roof, new sheetrock, everything. At that point, how much is the is the house worth? You know, and when you buying the house now, the way it looks now, obviously you know, it needs a lot of uh, repairs and everything. Are you getting, are are the numbers making sense? So the way you're buying it now, plus the cost of repair, are you still going to be under the ARV, the value of the house? If you're still under, it's good because that cushion you need for, if you're selling the house, that's going to be your profit. If you keep the house, that's going to allow you to refinance the house, you know, because when you refinance, you can't refinance at a hundred percent, you got to refinance at 70, 75, 80%. You need that cushion so you can get your money back. And also when you rent the house, you need that cushion so you can make some profit, you know, on the, on the rent. But that's some of the things that I look for. That's why if, if I'm looking at a house and it needs a lot of work, mm-hmm. it just needs too much work and the price doesn't justify the amount of repairs that it needs then mm-hmm. i mean that's a red flag for me i can't right um and then they say you know you can negotiate but if we're off by too much then you know in this market someone else will buy it right, right. someone right. else will buy it so why are you yeah. bothering? going back to your question about the red flag uh, i always tell people uh especially my clients you can change whatever's inside the house you can repair it at any time you know Maybe maybe something that doesn't need to be repaired right away. You can repair over the years. But the thing that you cannot change is the location. You cannot change. So when you go into a house, don't be blinded, like you said, by the way it looks on the inside. It may be completely remodeled, new flooring, new walls, maybe new plumbing, new electricity, everything. But if it's not in an area where you, will, you can see yourself living in, done before by the way the house looks because I have seen people that bought a nice house and they didn't really like the area. They weren't a big fan of the area, but because they went inside so that all the appliances were new, all the flooring was new, the paint, uh, countertops, everything was nice. They bought it and they regret it a year later. So...
0: Yeah, there's a reason why in real estate there's the whole like location, location, location. Uh,
2: exactly. Delia actually made fun of that, but it's true. I, I, <laughs> right, location, location, The part time you heard that you couldn't stop laughing. And outside, <laughs> it's really that's what it comes down to, location, right. location location.
0: Right. All right. So as we wrap up, I have um, a couple of questions. If you could go back in time to when you were 18, right? What would you tell yourself?
2: If I was eighteen, what would I tell myself? with everything I know now, I would say try to, try to learn as much as possible. Like right now, I'm more about learning. I'm always learning something new that I didn't know yesterday. But I wasn't always like that. Like if you, if I think about myself as an 18 year old, I was more focused on like, let me just get high school over with, I already got into college. But now I'm seeing like, you know, going back to Gen Z, they're like knowledgeable on all the things outside of school. And To me, that's like, that's great, you know, because back then for me, it was college and like I was living inside my own bubble and nothing outside of it mattered. But yeah, I would tell myself to like, try to learn more.
0: Now looking forward, what would make your 80-year-old self proud of
2: you? That was another reason why I started or we started Legacy for Investments, right? I wanted to, I guess, keep it in the family. I wanted to start like a, literally what it says, a legacy, uh, build generational wealth. I hear about that a lot, especially during the pandemic. You know, a lot of people were getting into investing and some were looking at it from like a short-term point of view, like let me make some money and then just do whatever with it. But now it seems like more people are shifting uh, that mindset to, you know, let's build wealth and let's keep it in the family and let's have our children do better than us. And their children do better than them so by the time i'm 80 i'm hoping that whatever it is that i'm doing now you know with legacy for investment uh with my real estate agent um sales job with everything that i'm trying to accomplish i hope that you know by the time i'm 80 i see my children or grandchildren doing bigger things than what i'm doing now way bigger things
0: so just to add an additional question, actually, starting a business with family members can be really tough, right? How did you guys, you and your sisters, think about the boundaries of what is business and what is family ensuring ensuring uh, legacy for investment so that, that whatever family things could happen, does not impact the business?
2: We have our own group chat on WhatsApp, right? Just focus on the business. We have weekly meetings just to talk about the business. Outside of it, obviously, you know, we'll text sometimes, but most of the things that are discussed business related are all kept in either the meeting or the group chat. And then in person, when we all get together, we'll talk about it. Um, So I think that that has helped us a lot, you know, separate what's personal and what's business. Because even if you do start a business with family members, you know, in this case, well, siblings, there's still gonna be an exchange of ideas not everyone may agree with something you know i may think of different things that can be done my sister delia my sister sarah they can think of other things but that's actually a good thing you know i i want people to tell me like maybe we shouldn't do it this way maybe we could do it this other way and for me i'm like a person that i'm open to you know learning and i'm open to hearing what other people have to say i always tell people i'm a good listener like I, I, if you tell me I'm wrong, um, you know, let me know why I'm wrong. And then maybe I'll agree with you. So I think with, with family, I need a I need a business partner. I needed to start something because everything that I'm doing by myself, sometimes I, I have to, I need someone to tell me, yeah, this, this sounds good. Like you should go along with it. And now that we have a business together and who knows me better than my sisters, my own family. We're a brand new business, but I think we've been very good at keeping that, you know everything related to the business within the business and everything that's personal outside of it,
0: yeah, and it seems like you keep it organized as well, right? With your weekly meetings and having a separate chat about it. Um, I think that could that's probably also helping you keep family and business stuff separate, yeah, yeah. um so the last two questions are. Um, what is your message to the Peruvian diaspora here in the U.S. And then, if you know the we the podcast does get does have an audience in Peru, a small audience but an audience. Um, okay. ¿cuál sería tu mensaje para los Perú?
2: Okay, so for the Peruvians living here, um, my message would be to. and This might sound a little random, but to take care of your parents, because I think a lot of us are here and we're young. Um, and as we get all there, we, we want to work, um, we want to make money, you know, but we forget that our parents sacrificed a lot of things to get here. And, you know, maybe now we're doing better, but we also have to make sure that we don't leave them behind. I I know people that, you know, they have a good job and they're making good money now, but their parents are still living in an apartment in like whatever they grew up in. And maybe it's not even the best area to to live in. So I would say always, you know, always take care of your parents, regardless of whether, you know, I mean, you're an adult now. As you get older, they're getting older too. And, y para los peruanos que viven en Perú, uh, yo diría que sigan disfrutando la vida. Yo creo que para los peruanos, esto es algo que somos muy buenos en hacer, en, en disfrutar la vida. Yo fui a Perú el pasado fin de semana, y en dos días sentí que, eh, Viví la experiencia de ser un adulto en Perú y todas las cosas que la gente hace para tratar de sacar su mente de, de otras cosas que estén pasando. Cómo disfrutan, cómo se juntan los fines de semana, todo es un chiste, todo es este, alegría. Y yo sé que ahora con la situación de la política pueden estar separándose un poco y no me gustaría ver eso, me gustaría ver más unidad. It's a
0: That's a great message. I love that. And it's true. We're very good about enjoying life.
2: We are. Especially we in Peru. I'm, especially in Peru. That that day that I went to to the game, that whole I just I felt like I missed out on that. Because mm-hmm. I was never a teenager or a adult over there. Mm-hmm. When I left I was you know, I was nine years old. Mm-hmm. So going back now and like drinking a beer outside the stadium with like all Peruvians and just Peruvian slang and and jokes like we're very funny I think we're very funny people Um, and eating Peruvian food and talking to other people that live there right that live there their whole life. right I think I missed out on that
0: yeah that's awesome all right Joseph, thank you again so much for sharing the wealth of knowledge that you shared with us about real estate and for sharing a little bit of your story as well. I really appreciate your time and I wish you and your sisters best of luck and many blessings that should come with your business, Legacy for Investments. I really want to see all of you succeed and build that generational wealth that you mentioned because that is really what I want for all of our community. I applaud your uh Yes, really how much you're educating yourself and are and learning because, and are sharing with members of our community because I think that's also important. Like we don't have to reinvent the wheel. Many of us are experts in different areas and I want us all to connect and I want us all to learn from each other because to your point, deberíamos seguir unidos. Seguir yeah. unidos, whether we're here, whether we're in Peru, let's keep our community united. Let's keep our community like helping each other out. And that's really what I want to accomplish with this podcast. So again, Joseph, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Are you a small business looking to expand your digital footprint? Are you a small business looking to reach more of the Peruvian diaspora in the United States? Consider sponsoring an episode of Peruvians of USA. Peruvians of USA has launched its first sponsorship program. If you're interested, please visit peruviansofusa.com slash sponsors or send us a message on Instagram. Thank you for listening to Peruvians of USA. If you like the show, be sure to
1: subscribe and review an Apple podcast. It lets other Peruvians find the show. If you want to hear more from me, you can follow me on Instagram at Peruvians of USA. I'm looking forward to connecting with you there.
0: All right. Talk to you soon. Ciao.